God, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Please be seated. I don't know about you, but spring is here in my throat. (laughs) So I have a little bit of a nasal thing going on, and I apologize in advance. I'm Mary Gray Reeves, and I am a bishop in the Episcopal Church. There's a biography online, and um, I don't want to talk too much about myself because I'm actually here to connect with you and uh, talk to you. And I thank you, Simon, for the invitation to be here today. Uh, I heard this morning that uh, your bishop, Rob Wright, who's a close colleague of mine, and Ralph Warnick were here last week, and I'm so glad I did not know that until just a few minutes ago. (laughs) But I am indeed honored uh, to be here with you, especially during this time of uh, discernment and of transition and of some kind of new calling that uh, God is doing among you. Uh, It's an adventure, and I thank you for inviting me to be part of your adventure. Thank you for that. Uh, We are here today at this moment on the first Sunday of Lent. And Lent is a season of the church. It is a construct. And it is a construct of about 40 days, depending on how you count it. (laughs) But we have to remember as we think of that number 40, which appears in our gospel today in the temptation of Jesus, that 40 is something like umpteenth. It feels like something that can go on forever because the season of transition is so powerful and transformative. And so if we can understand uh, the beauty and the richness of metaphor and simile and symbolism that occurs in our scriptures and in the Hebrew tradition, uh, we can remember that that's what that 40 means. And Lent, uh, it's a construct It's an opportunity for us to explore wilderness, to explore desert, to explore deconstruction. Frankly, I don't really think we need Lent this year. (laughs) We are are living in a world that is deconstructing. We are part of a huge deconstruction, are we not? We're sitting right in the middle of it. And this year, we don't need Lent to be long We need to actually use those 40 days and and see a process in it. Uh, Because there is a process going on in God's work of salvation right now. It's lasting years. It feels like 40 years, does it not, of COVID and now with this horrible war happening. When will it stop? There's a massive transition happening here. And so Lent is so sweet It's so tidy. It's so clean. (laughs) You can break it down. The desert monastics uh, embraced this life. And from from Gregory Nyssa, from a whole crowd of our early church parents, uh, they could see there's a period of mourning and there's a period of insight. And then the glory comes. And so this Lent, you might actually just reflect on Where am I in this process of this massive 
global universal transition happening on, that's going on. Where am I in it? Who am I in it? How am I in it? Where's God in it? Where's this church in it? Uh, We have all been through times like this in our lives, and perhaps you can look back on your own story, and you can see uh, where the trajectory of your formation was, the trajectory of your learning. You can look at it and say, that was really intense grief of a deep loss in my life, or of something that I had to change that just couldn't go on the way it was. And there were then these, all these insights. And then life settled out again into a new space. Look at your own story as we look at the big story. Sometimes these transitions are 40 seconds, 40 days, 40 weeks, 40 years. Uh, a week ago yesterday, I was at the mall with my daughter Katie. And my daughter Katie is marrying a beautiful young man named Nick next September. And everybody else has their clothes for the wedding except for me. (laughs) So uh, we went shopping together. And it was so lovely. And we had such a lovely time. And the day was starting to wind down. I didn't find a dress yet, by the way. But she looks great. And we did find some really pretty little earrings for her to wear (laughs) with her gown. And as we were wrapping up at a jewelry counter in the department store, I saw this um, family start to move urgently out of the corner of my eye, and I thought, oh, something's going on over there. So I, I put my attention on them, and I, the mother was running ahead, and she said, there's an exit there. And I thought, maybe they've lost a child. That was my first reaction, was a, a child of their family had wandered off. And then as I looked out on the left side... There was a whole crowd moving in from the mall and running for that exit. And I heard the words, uh, shots are fired and someone is hurt. And immediately, Katie and I knew we were in the middle of an active shooter event. (laughs) And I've never been in one of those. I don't know about you. Um, So we moved with the crowd, and it was fascinating. In hindsight, at the moment, it was not so fascinating. (laughs) It was terrifying. Uh, But people were quiet and still, and it was like everybody knew what to do. Just just stay calm and quiet and move towards the exit. And we got into the back corridor of the the, uh, department store, and uh, it was dark, and the people who worked there just kept saying, just just stay here and be quiet. And one young woman, I think an employee, she she saw a truck that was pulled into the bay uh, for loading and unloading. And so she said to people, I'm going in there. And she went in there, and people barricaded inside the truck. Katie and I and uh, four pretty hysterical teenage girls who had found their way right between us opted for the exit door, and we went out. And it was a matter of time before this massive people were just exiting the mall, and in the parking lot, and the story passed that it was somebody with a concealed weapon. The weapon had discharged. Uh, Sadly, really injured the person. Uh, But it wasn't a mass shooting event, which was a relief. But in what was no more than 40 seconds, it was terrifying to imagine what it could have been. 
And in moments like that, when we come close to death, or when we are in death, when it's us or somebody we love deeply, or life as we know it, uh, we, we think about life. And we think about, what does my life need to be now that I, I see it differently? And we are in a time such as that. It is deeply formational if we can step back and apply such a leisurely, privileged word. <laughs> I'm being formed. But these times are deeply formational. They transform us. They change us. They are part of our life as the baptized. Jesus, in our gospel, uh, is, is out in the desert. He's not just out in the desert or the wilderness. He's pushed out. And it's interesting. If you go to the actual Bible and read the first verse of chapter 4, Uh, It just says he's filled with the Spirit and he's pushed out by the Spirit into the wilderness. But the church, because make no doubt about it, the lectionary conveys the agenda of the church. (laughs) And the first line of it is in our bulletin which says, Jesus had just been baptized. This is a birth story. This is a birth narrative. Our baptisms are a birth narrative. Temptation comes after it. You can go back a few verses. Jesus is baptized by John. John is Jesus' midwife into the public ministry uh, that he is about ready to begin. He is baptized, just as we are. Our lives are public as Christians. Uh, That's what we do. We live proclaiming the good news of God and Jesus Christ. Uh, But first, there's a genealogy where Jesus fits into the salvation story of God. And then he's pushed by the Spirit. He's taken out there to meet up with the devil. It's like temptation boot camp or something, right? It's like, you're on your own. See you later. And there's biblical precedent for this, just in case you think it's Odd, or somehow Jesus is uh, perhaps singled out, or maybe we think when we are singled out and tempted and in a really hard place in life. Job, if you read the first couple chapters of Job, right, the whole big piece is really about the question of evil and of suffering. But the ante gets upped in the, upped in the first couple of chapters. Uh, God and the heavenly beings are meeting, and Satan comes too. And God says, Satan, what are you doing here? Satan says, oh, I'm just moving to and fro, just walking about on the earth. Nothing special today. And God says, oh, have you seen my Job? My special good Job. And Satan says, oh, yeah, I've seen him. And, you know, he's so special because you've given him everything and then you've built a fence around it and you totally protect him. You coddle Job. And God says, well, maybe that's true. Okay, you can touch all his possessions, which includes his children and his wives, but you don't get to touch Job. Satan says, deal. And then the book ensues. 
And at the end of the book of Job, the Hebrew can never, has never been, throughout all of biblical scholarship, definitively translated. Is he mad? Is he humble? You can't quite tell. You actually have to read it. And imagine it for yourself. Imagine it for yourself. So the Spirit leads Jesus out. God is part of the setup of this suffering, of this temptation. I hope you feel unsettled by that. (laughs) I feel unsettled by that when I think of the suffering in my own life. And yet it's deeply formational. In this story, it's so interesting because it says Jesus is tempted for the 40 days. Then the 40 days ends, and then Satan comes out with the big temptations, you know, the big three, right? One about your physical and your, your own existence and my safe, my security, how I felt in the mall. All I wanted was to hold my baby, who's 29 years old, but boy, in that moment, I thought she was four. I felt all of that just rise up in me. That first one comes, there's bread now, 40 days, it's done. Want some bread now? Like he's taking the last 40 seconds of that season of temptation. And then it's power. And God, maybe, just like he did with Satan with Job, maybe he did give Satan all the power that moment to give away kingdoms. Maybe he and Jesus could have made a deal. How many kingdoms do you want, Jesus? I got him. And then the big one, tempting God. I'll take you up to the pinnacle in Jerusalem. And for me, it came up imagining it like, and then from that pinnacle in Jerusalem, you can say to God, you know, I have suffered out here, and you better make it a big, public, splashy thank you. So when I jump off this thing, you better catch me, and everybody better see it. (laughs) Have we felt like that? I deserve something now. I deserve something. And Jesus resists it all. And then he starts his public ministry. He's ushered right back into town, and the first thing that happens is he gets rejected and thrown out of town. (laughs) But he was probably ready for that. In John's story, Jesus starts out divine. In Luke's story, he has to learn all the way along. And it makes us alike. It makes us the same, with the same struggle. Uh, We're in that place as individuals, and we are in this place as a church. But the signs of the times tell us that a birth is coming for our church, uh, perhaps for us individually. Always in the Bible, the birth narratives uh, are preceded by corruption, preceded by slavery, preceded uh, by being a refugee and having nowhere to go and no one to take care of you. And then the most unlikely characters give birth. Teenage girls who've just gotten through puberty, (laughs) old women who are no longer fertile, 
And the babies come. The new birth, the new life comes from the most unlikely places. The Episcopal Church in the United States of America is a bit like an infertile widow. (laughs) I am a widow, and I am infertile at this point. Menopause has come and gone. (laughs) And the Episcopal Church can feel like that, can't it? We worry, we wonder, we worry, we say, what's going to happen to our beloved, beloved church? And as a bishop of the church, I want to tell you, the church that we have known and loved is dying. And it is being born again. It is being born again. And our time of discernment, it's quite an honor, really, that God gives us this opportunity. It's hard work. This labor is hard. But we are called to discern. We are called to be transformed, to be formed, to welcome the glory of the new church that may look like this in some places and look nothing like this in other places. Can we be open to that? I pray for you, all saints, just as I pray for our whole church. I pray for myself as a leader of this church. I pray that we will be formed by the Spirit of God and whatever role evil may have to play in that. It's a little scary, but humbling too. May we take up this charge. May we be open to the way God is forming and teaching us to be the church of the future, to be born anew. Amen.